This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, my name is Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read you to sleep. I've only just started this show, and I realized that the only books I'd be able to read here are books that are in the public domain. It was amazing when I found this out and looked into how many books belong to everyone now. Mostly old books. Classics like Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson, Mark Twain. So many books that I've wanted to read for a long time, but have always found an excuse not to do it. Now, I get to read them to you. Just because I hope that you'll be asleep by the end of this, I wanted to say now that the music you're hearing is by my really good friend, James Lepkowski, and it's played on this amazing guitar ukulele thing that he made. Tonight, I get to read you a story that was 
a really big part of my childhood. It's Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham, written in 1908. My brother and I didn't really have TV growing up, but we had a lot of really great old movies on VCR. Disney movies and Old Yeller and Homeward Bound. And one of them that we watched over and over and over again was the 1995 cartoon version of Wind in the Willows. It's amazing. I've probably seen it a hundred times by now, but I've never read the book. So tonight, I'm finally going to read it while you drift off into a deep, deep sleep. So lay your head down, settle in, fix your pillow just how you like it, slowly melt into your bed, and close your eyes, and let me read to you. Chapter 1. The River Bank The mole had been working very hard all morning, spring cleaning his little home, first with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash till he had dust in his throat and eyes and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur and an aching back and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirit of divine discontent and longing. It was a small wonder, then, that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor, said, Bother, and Oh, blow, and also hang spring cleaning, and bolted out of his house without even waiting to put on his coat. Something up above was calling him imperiously, and he made for the steep little tunnel which answered in his case to the graveled carriage drive owned by animals whose residencies are nearer to the sun and air. So he scraped and scratched and scrabbled and scrooged, and then he scrooged again and scrabbled and scratched and scraped, working busily with his little paws and muttering to himself, Up we go, up we go, till at last, pop. His snout came out into the sunlight and he found himself rolling in the warm grass of a great meadow. This is fine, he said to himself. This is better than whitewashing. The sunshine struck hot on his fur. Soft breezes caressed his heated brow. And after the seclusion of the cellarage he had lived in so long, the carol of happy birds fell on his dulled hearing, almost like a shout. Jumping off all his four legs at once, in the joy of living and the delight of spring without its cleaning, he pursued his way across the meadow till he reached the hedge of the further side. Hold up, said an elderly rabbit at the gap. Sixpence for the privilege of passing by the private road. He was bowled over in an instant, and the impatient and contemptuous mole who trotted alongside the hedge, chafing the other rabbits as they peeped hurriedly at their holes to see what the row was about. Onion sauce, onion sauce, he remarked jeeringly and was gone before they could think of a thoroughly satisfactory reply. Then they all started grumbling at each other. How stupid you are. Why didn't you tell him? Well, why didn't you say? You might have reminded him, and so on, in the usual way. But of course, it was then much too late, as is always the case. It all seemed too good to be true. Hither and thither, through the meadows, he rambled busily, along the hedgerows, across the corpses, finding everywhere birds building, flowers budding, leaves thrusting, everywhere happy and progressive and occupied. And instead of having an uneasy conscience pricking him 
and whispering whitewash. He somehow could only feel how jolly it was to be the only idle dog among all these busy citizens. After all, the best part of the holiday is perhaps not so much to be resting yourself as to see all the other fellows busy working. He thought his happiness was complete when, as he meandered aimlessly along, suddenly he stood by the edge of a full-fed river. Never in his life had he seen a river before. This sleek, sinuous, full-bodied animal, chasing and chuckling, gripping things with a gurgle and leaving them with a laugh, to fling itself on fresh playmates that shook themselves free and were caught and held again. All was a shake and all was a shiver, glints and gleams and sparkles, rustle and swirl, chatter and bubble. The mole was bewitched, entranced, fascinated. By the side of the river he trotted as one trots, one very small, by the side of a man, who holds one spellbound by exciting stories, and when tired at last he sat on the bank while the river still chattered on to him, a babbling procession of the best stories in the world, sent from the heart of the earth to be told at last to the insatiable sea. As he sat on the grass and looked across the river, a dark hole in the bank opposite, just above the water's edge, caught his eye, and dreamily he fell to considering what a nice snug dwelling place it would make for an animal with a few wants and fond of bijou riverside residence, above flood level and remote from noise and dust. As he gazed, something bright and small seemed to twinkle down in the heart of it, vanished, then twinkled once more like a tiny star. But it could hardly be a star, in such an unlikely situation, and it was too glittering and small for a glowworm. Then, as he looked, it winked at him, and so declared itself to be an eye, and a small face began gradually to grow up around it, like a frame round a picture. A brown little face, with whiskers, a grave round face, with the same twinkle in its eye that had first attracted his notice small neat ears and thick silky hair. It was the water rat. Then the two animals stood and regarded each other cautiously. Hello, mole, said the water rat. Hello, rat, said the mole. Would you like to come over? inquired the rat presently. Oh, it's all very well to talk, said the mole, rather pettishly, he being new to a river and riverside life and its ways. The rat said nothing but stooped and unfastened a rope and hauled on it, then lightly stepped into a little boat, which the mole had not observed. It was painted blue outside and white within, and it was just the size for two animals. And the mole's whole heart went out to it at once, even though he did not yet fully understand its uses. The rat sculled smartly across and made fast. Then he held up his forepaw as the mole stepped gingerly down. Lean on that, he said. Now then, step lively. And the mole, to his surprise and rapture, found himself actually seated in the stern of a real boat. This has been a wonderful day, said he, as the rat shoved off and took to the skulls again. Do you know I've never been in a boat before in all my life? What? cried the rat, open mouth. Never been in a... you never... well, I... what have you been doing then? Is it so nice as all that? asked the mole shyly, though he was quite prepared to believe it as he leant back in his seat and surveyed the cushions, the oars, the rowlocks, 
and all the fascinating fittings and felt the boat sway lightly under him. Nice is the only thing, said the water rat solemnly, as he leant forward for his stroke. Believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats, simply messing. He went on dreamily, messing about in boats, messing. Look ahead, rat, cried the mole suddenly. It was too late. The boat struck the bank full tilt. The dreamer, the joyous oarsman, lay on his back on the bottom of the boat, his heels in the air. About in boats, or with boats, the rat went on composedly, picking himself up with a pleasant laugh. In or out of them, it doesn't matter. Nothing seems to really matter. That's the charm of it. Whether you get away, or whether you don't, whether you arrive at your destination, or whether you reach somewhere else, or whether you never get anywhere at all, you're always busy, and you never do anything in particular. And when you've done it, there's always something else to do. And you can do it if you like, but you'd much better not. Look here, if you've really nothing else on hand this morning, supposing we drop down the river together and have a long day of it. The mole waggled his toes from sheer happiness, spread his chest with a sigh of full contentment, and leaned back blissfully into the soft cushions. What a day I'm having, he said. Let us start at once. Hold hard a minute, then, said the rat. He looped up the painter through a ring in his landing stage, climbed into the hole above, and after a short interval reappeared staggering under a fat wicker luncheon basket. Shove that under your feet, he observed to the mole, and he passed it down to the boat. Then he untied the painter and took the skulls again. What's inside it, asked the mole, wriggling with curiosity. There's cold chicken inside it, replied the rat briefly. Cold tongue, cold ham, cold beef pickled, Hirsch gherkin salad, French rolls, crest sandwiches, potted meat, ginger beer, lemonade, soda water. Oh, stop, stop, cried the mole in ecstasies. This is too much. Do you really think so? inquired the rat seriously. It's only what I always take on these little excursions, and the other animals are always telling me that I'm a mean beast and cut it very fine. The mole never heard a word he was saying absorbed in this new life he entered upon, intoxicated with the sparkle, the ripple, the scents and the sounds of the sunlight. He trailed upon the water and dreamed long waking dreams. The water rat, like a good little fellow he was, sculled steadily on and forbore to disturb him. I like your clothes awfully, old chap, he remarked after some half an hour or so passed. I'm going to get a black velvet smoking suit myself one day as soon as I can afford it. I beg your pardon, said the mole. I beg your pardon, said the mole, pulling himself together with an effort. You must think me very rude, but all this is so new to me. So this is a river. The river, corrected the rat. And you really live by the river? What a jolly life. By it, and with it, and on it, and in it said the rat. It's brother and sister to me, and aunts, and company, and food and drink, and naturally washing. It's my world, and I don't want any other. What it hasn't got is not worth having, and what it doesn't know is not worth knowing. Lord, the times we've had together. 
whether in winter or summer, spring or autumn, it's always got its fun and excitement. When the floods are on in February, and my cellars and basement are brimming with drink that's no good to me, and the brown water runs my best bedroom window, or again when it all drops away and shows patches of mud that smell like plum cake, and the rushes and weed clog the channels, and I can potter about dry shot over most of the bed of it and find fresh food to eat, and things careless people have dropped out of boats. But isn't it a bit dull sometimes? The mole ventured to ask. Just you and the river, and no one else to pass a word with? No one else to? Well, I mustn't be hard on you, said the rat with forbearance. You're new to it, and of course you don't know. The bank is so crowded nowadays that many people are moving away altogether. Oh no, it isn't what it used to be at all. Otters, kingfishers, dabchicks, moorhens, all of them about all day long and always wanting you to do something, as if a fellow had no business of his own to attend to. What lies over there, asked the mole, waving a paw towards the background of woodland that darkly framed the water meadows on one side of the river. That? Oh, that's just the wild wood, said the rat shortly. We don't go there very much, we river bankers. Aren't they, aren't they very nice people in there? said the mole, a trifle nervously. Well, replied the rat, let me see. The squirrels are all right, and the rabbits, some of them, but rabbits are a mixed lot. And then there's Badger, of course. He lives right in the heart of it. Wouldn't live anywhere else either if you paid him to do it. Dear old Badger, nobody interferes with him. They'd better not, he added significantly. Why, who should interfere with him? asked the mole. Well, of course, there are others, explained the rat, in a hesitating sort of way. Weasels and stoats and foxes and so on. They're all right in a way. I'm very good friends with them. Past the time of day when we meet and all that, but they break out sometimes. There's no denying it. And then, well, you can't really trust them. And that's the fact. The mole knew well that it was quite against animal etiquette to dwell on possible trouble ahead or even to allude to it, so we dropped the subject. And beyond the wild wood again, he asked, where it's all blue and dim, and one sees what may be hills, or perhaps they mayn't, and something like smoke of towns, or is it only cloud drift? Beyond the wild wood comes the wide world, said the rat, and that's something that doesn't matter, either to you or to me. I've never been there, and I'm never going, nor you either if you've got any sense at all. Don't ever refer to it again, please. Now then, here's our backwater at least, and we're going to lunch. Leaving the main stream, they now passed into what seemed, at first sight, like a little landlocked lake. Green turf sloped down at either edge, brown snaky tree roots gleamed below the surface of the quiet water, while ahead of them, the silvery shoulder and foamy tumble of the weir arm in arm with the restless, drippling mill-wheel that held up in its turn a gray-gabled mill-house, filled the air with a soothing murmur of sound, dull and smothery, yet with little clear voices speaking up cheerfully out of intervals. It was so very beautiful that the mole could only hold up both forepaws and gasp, Oh my, oh my, oh my. The rat brought the boat alongside the bank, made her fast, Helped is still awkward. 
Mole safely ashore and swung out the luncheon basket. The mole begged as a favor to be allowed to unpack it all by himself, and the rat was very pleased to indulge him and to sprawl at full length on the grass and rest while his excited friend shook out the tablecloth and spread it, took out all the mysterious packets one by one, and arranged their contents in due order, still gasping, Oh my, oh my, at each fresh revelation. When all was ready, the rat said, Now, pitch in, old fellow. And the mole was indeed very glad to obey, for he started his spring cleaning at a very early hour this morning, as all people will do, and did not pause for a bite or sup, and he had been through a very great deal since that distant time which now seems so many days ago. What are you looking at, said the rat presently, when the edge of their hunger was somewhat dulled, and the mole's eyes were able to wander off the tablecloth a little. I am looking, said the mole, at a streak of bubbles that I see traveling along the surface of the water. That is a thing that strikes me as funny. Bubbles? Oh-ho, said the rat, and chirruped cheerily in the inviting sort of way. A broad glistened muzzle showed itself above the edge of the bank, and the otter hauled himself out and shook the water from his coat. Greedy beggars, he observed, making for the provender. You didn't invite me, ratty. This was an impromptu affair, explained the rat. By the way, my friend, Mr. Mole. Proud, I'm sure, said the otter, and the two animals were friends forthwith. Such a rumpus everywhere, continued the otter. All the world seems to be out in the river today. I came up this back water to try and get a moment's peace, and then stumbled upon you fellows. At least, I beg your pardon, I don't exactly mean that, you know. There was a rustle behind them, proceeding from a hedge wherein last year's leaves still clung thick, and a stripy head with high shoulders behind it peered forth on them. Come on, old badger, shouted the rat, and badger trotted forward a pace or two, then grunted, hmm, company, and turned his back and disappeared from view. That's just the sort of fellow he is, observed the disappointed rat, simply hates society. Now we shan't see any more of him today. Well, tell us who's out in the river. Toad's out, for one, replied the otter, in his brand new wager boat. New togs, new everything. The two animals looked at each other and laughed. Once it was nothing but sailing, said the rat. Then he tired of that and took to punting. Nothing would please him but to punt all day and every day, and a nice mess he made of it. Last year it was houseboating, and we all had to go and stay with him in his houseboat and pretend we liked it. He was going to spend all the rest of his life in a houseboat. It's all the same. Whatever he takes up, he gets tired of it, and he starts on something fresh. Such a good fellow, too, remarked the otter reflectively, but no stability, especially on a boat. From where they sat, they could get a glimpse of the main stream across the island that separated them, and just then... A wager boat flashed into view. The rower, a short, stout figure, splashing badly and rolling a good deal, but working his hardest. The rat stood up and hailed him, but Toad, for it was he, shook his head and settled sternly to his work. He'll be out of that boat in a minute if he rolls like that, said the rat, sitting down again. Of course he will, chuckled the otter. Did I ever tell you that good story about Toad and the lock keeper? It happened this way. Toad, 
An errand of mayflies swerved unsteadily athwart the current in the intoxicated fashion affected by young bloods of mayflies seeing life. A swirl of water and a cloop, and the mayfly was visible no more. Neither was the otter. The mole looked down. The voice was still in his ears, but the turf whereon he had sprawled was clearly vacant, not an otter to be seen as far as the distant horizon. But again there was a streak of bubbles on the surface of the river. The rat hummed a tune, and the mole recollected that animal etiquette forbade any sort of comment on the sudden disappearance of one's friends at any moment, for any reason or no reason whatever. Well, well, said the rat, I suppose we ought to be moving. I wonder which of us had better pack the luncheon basket. He did not speak as if he was frightfully eager for the treat. Oh, please let me, said the mole. So, of course, the rat let him. Packing the basket was not quite such pleasant work as unpacking the basket. It never is. But the mole was bent on enjoying everything. And although, just when he had got the basket packed and strapped up rightly, he saw a plate staring at him from the grass. And when the job had been done again, the rat pointed out a fork which anybody ought to have seen. And last of all, behold, the mustard pot, which he had been sitting on without knowing it. Still, somehow, the thing got finished at last, without much loss of temper. The afternoon sun was getting low as the rat sculled gently homewards in a dreamy mood, murmuring poetry things over to himself and not paying much attention to the mole. But the mole was very full of lunch and self-satisfaction and pride, and already quite at home in the boat, so he thought, and was getting a bit restless besides. And presently he said, Ratty, please, I want a row, now. The rat shook his head with a smile. Not yet, my young friend, he said. Wait till you've had a few lessons. It's not as easy as it looks. The mole was quiet for a minute or two, but he began to feel more and more jealous of Rat, sculling so strongly and so easily along, and his pride began to whisper that he could do it every bit as well. He jumped up and seized the skulls so suddenly that the Rat, who was gazing out at the river and saying more poetry things to himself, was taken by surprise and fell backwards off his seat with his legs in the air for a second time, while the triumphant mole took his place and grabbed the skulls with entire confidence. Stop it, you silly ass, cried the rat from the bottom of the boat. You can't do it. You'll have us over. The mole flung his skulls back with a flourish and made a great dig at the water. He missed the surface altogether. His legs flew up above his head, and he found himself lying on top of the prostrate rat. Greatly alarmed, he made a grab at the side of the boat, and the next moment, sploosh. Over went the boat and he found himself struggling in the river. Oh my, how cold the water was, and oh how very wet it felt. How it sang in his ears, and he went down, down, down. How bright and welcome the sun looked as he rose to the surface, coughing and sputtering. How black was his despair when he felt himself sinking again. Then a firm paw gripped him by the back of his neck. It was the rat, and he was evidently laughing. The mole could feel him laughing right down his arm and through his paw, and so into this, the mole's neck. The rat got hold of the skull and shoved it under the mole's arm. Then he did the same by the other side of him and, swimming behind, propelled the helpless animal to shore, helped him out, and set him down on the bank, 
a squashy, pulpy lump of misery. When the rat rubbed him down a bit and wrung some of the wet out of him, he said, Now then, old fellow, trot up and down the towing path as hard as you can till you're warm and dry again while I dive for the luncheon basket. So the dismal mole, wet without and ashamed within, trotted about till he was fairly dry while the rat plunged into the water again, recovered the boat, righted her and made her fast, fetched his floating property to shore by degrees, and finally dived successfully for the luncheon basket and struggled to land with it. When all was ready for a start once more, the mole, limp and dejected, took his seat in the stern of the boat, and as they set off he said in a low voice, broken with emotion, Ratty, my generous friend, I am very sorry indeed for my foolish and ungrateful conduct. My heart quite fails me when I think of how I might have lost that beautiful luncheon basket. Indeed, I have been a complete ass and I know it. Will you overlook it once and forgive me and let things go on as before? That's all right. Bless you, responded the rat cheerily. What's a little wet to a water rat? I'm more in the water than out of it most days. Don't you think any more about it? And look here. I really think you had better come and stop with me for a little time. It's very plain and rough, you know, not like Toad's house and all, but you haven't seen that yet. Still, I can make you comfortable, and I'll teach you how to row and to swim, and you'll soon be as handy on the water as any of us. The mole was so touched by his kind manner of speaking that he could find no voice to answer him, and he had to brush away a tear or two with the back of his paw. But the rat kindly looked in the other direction, and presently the mole's spirits revived again, and he was even able to give some straight back talk to a couple of more hens who were sniggering to each other about his bedraggled appearance. When they got home, the rat made a bright fire in the parlor and planted the mole in an armchair in front of it, having fetched down a dressing gown and slippers for him, and told him river stories till supper time. Very thrilling stories they were, too, to an earth-dwelling animal like Mole. Stories about weirs, and sudden floods, and leaping pike, and steamers that flung hard bottles, at least bottles that were certainly flung, and from steamers, so presumably by them, and about herons, and how particular they were whom they spoke to, and about adventures down drains and night fishings with otter, or excursions far afield with badger. Supper was a most cheerful meal, but shortly afterwards a terribly sleepy mole had to be escorted upstairs by his considerate host to the best bedroom, where he soon laid his head on a pillow in great peace and contentment, knowing that his newfound friend the river was lapping the sill of his window. This day was only the first of many similar ones for the emancipated mole, each one of them longer and fuller of interest as the ripening summer moved forward. He learnt to swim and row, and he entered into the joy of running water. And with his ear to the reed stems he caught, at intervals, something of what the wind went whispering so constantly among them. Chapter 2. The Open Road Ratty, said the mole suddenly, one bright summer morning, if you please I want to ask you a favor. The rat was sitting on the river bank, singing a little song. He had just composed it himself, so he was very taken up with it, and he would not pay proper attention to the mole or anything else. Since early morning he had been swimming in the river, 
in the company with his friends and ducks. When the ducks stood on their heads suddenly, as ducks will, he would dive down and tickle their necks, just under where their chins would be if ducks had chins, till they were forced to come to the surface again in a hurry, spluttering and angry and shaking their feathers at him. For it is impossible to say quite all you feel when your head is under water. At least they implored him to go away and attend to his own affairs and leave them to mine theirs. So the rat went away and sat on the river bank in the sun and made up a song about them, which he called Duck's Ditty. All along the backwater, through the rushes tall, ducks are a-dabbling, up-tails all. Duck-tails, drakes-tails, yellow feet a-quiver, yellow bills all out of sight, busy in the river. Slushy green undergrowth, where the roach swim, here we keep our larder, cool and full and dim. Everyone for what he likes, we like to be, heads down, tails up, dabbling free. High in the blue above, swift swirl and call, we are down and dabbling, up tails all. I don't know that I think so very much of that little song, Rat, observed the mole cautiously. He was no poet himself and didn't care who knew it, and he had a candid nature. Nor don't the ducks neither, replied the rat cheerfully. They say, why can't fellows be allowed to do what they like, when they like and as they like, instead of other fellows sitting on banks and watching them all the time and making remarks and poetry and things about them? What nonsense it all is. That's what the ducks say. So it is, so it is, said the mole with great heartiness. No, it isn't, cried the rat indignantly. Well then, it isn't, it isn't replied the mole soothingly. But what I wanted to ask you was, won't you take me to call on Mr. Toad? I've heard so much about him, and I do want to make his acquaintance. Why, certainly, said the good-natured rat, jumping to his feet and dismissing poetry from his mind for the day. Get the boat out, and we'll paddle up there at once. It's never the wrong time to call on Toad. Early or late, he's always the same fellow. Always good-tempered, always glad to see you, Always sorry when you go. He must be a very nice animal, observed the mole, as he got into the boat and took to the skulls, while the rat settled himself comfortably in the stern. He is indeed the best of animals, replied rat. So simple, so good-natured, and so affectionate. Perhaps he's not very clever. We can't all be geniuses, and it may be that he is both boastful and conceited, but he's got some great qualities, has Toady. Rounding a bend in the river, they came to the sight of a handsome, dignified old house of mellowed red brick and well-kept lawns reaching down the water's edge. There is Toad Hall, said the rat, and that creek on the left, where the notice board says private, no landing allowed, leads to his boathouse, where we'll leave the boat. The stables are over there to the right. That's the banqueting hall you're looking at now. Very old, that is. Toad is rather rich, you know. And this is really one of the nicest houses in these parts, though we never admit this much to Toad. They glided up the creek, and the mole shipped his skulls as they passed into the shadow of the large boathouse. Here they saw many handsome boats, slung from the crossbeams or hauled on a slip, but none in the water, and the place had an unused and deserted air. The rat looked around him. I understand, said he. Boating is played out. He's tired of it and done with it. I wonder what new fat he's taken up now. Come along and let's look him up. We shall hear all about it quite soon enough. 
They disembarked and strolled across the gay, flower-decked lawns in search of Toad, whom they presently happened upon, resting in a wicker garden chair, with a preoccupied expression of face and a large map spread out on his knees. Hooray, he cried, jumping up on seeing them. This is splendid. He shook the paws of both of them warmingly, never waiting for an introduction to the mole. How kind of you, he went on dancing round them. I was just going to send a boat down the river for you, Ratty, with strict orders that you were to be fetched up here at once, whatever you were doing. I want you badly, both of you. Now what will you take? Come inside and have something. You don't know how lucky it is, you turning up just now. Let's sit quiet a bit, Toady, said the rat, throwing himself into an easy chair, while the mole took another by the side of him and made some civil remark about Toad's delightful residence. Finest house on the whole river, cried Toad boisterously, or anywhere else for that matter. He cannot help adding. Here the rat nudged the mole. Unfortunately, the Toad saw him do it and turned very red. There was a moment's painful silence. Then the Toad burst out laughing. All right, Ratty, he said. It's only my way, you know. And it's not such a very bad house, is it? You know you rather like it yourself. Now look here, let's be sensible. You are the very animals I wanted. You've got to help me. It's most important. It's about your rowing, I suppose, said the rat with an innocent air. You're getting on fairly well, though you splash a good bit still. With a great deal of patience and a quantity of coaching, you may. Oh, pooh, boating, interrupted the toad in great disgust. Silly, boyish amusement. I've given that up long ago. Sheer waste of time, that's what it is. It makes me downright sorry to see you fellows, who ought to know better, spending all your energies in that aimless manner. No, I've discovered the real thing, the only genuine occupation for a lifetime. I propose to devote the remainder of mine to it, and can only regret the wasted years that lie behind me, squandered in trivialities. Come with me, dear Ratty, and your amiable friend also, if he will be so very good, just as far as stable yard, and you shall see what you shall see. He led the way to the stable yard accordingly, the rat following the most mistrustful expression, and there, drawn out of the coach house into the open, they saw a gypsy caravan, shining with newness, painted a canary yellow, picked out with green and red wheels. There you are, cried the toad, straddling and expanding himself. There's real life for you, embodied in that little cart, the open road, the dusty highway, the heath, the common, the hedgerows, the rolling downs, camps, villages, towns, cities, here today, up and off somewhere else tomorrow, travel, change, interest, excitement, the whole world before you, an horizon that's always changing. And mind, this is the very finest cart of its sort that was ever built, without any exception. Come inside and look at the arrangements. Planned them all myself, I did. The mole was tremendously interested and excited, and followed him eagerly up the steps and into the interior of the caravan. The rat only snorted and thrust his hands deep into his pockets, remaining where he was. It was indeed very compact and comfortable. Little sleeping bunks, a little table that folded up against the wall, a cooking stove, lockers, bookshelves, a birdcage with a bird in it, and pots and pans, jugs and kettles of every size and variety. All complete, said the toad triumphantly, pulling open a locker. 
You see, biscuits, powdered lobster, sardines, everything you can possibly want. Soda water here, baki there, letter paper, bacon, jam, cards and dominoes, you'll find. He continued as they descended the steps again. You'll find that nothing, whatever, has been forgotten when we make our start this afternoon. I beg your pardon, said the rat slowly, as he chewed a straw. But did I overhear you say something about we and start and this afternoon? Now, you dear old good ratty, said Toad imploringly. Don't begin in all that stiff and sniffy sort of way, because you know you've got to come. I can't possibly manage without you. So please consider it settled, and don't argue. It's the one thing I can't stand. You surely don't mean to stick to your dull, fusty old river all your life, and just live in a hole in a bank and boat. I want to show you the world. I'm going to make an animal out of you, my boy. I don't care, said the rat doggedly. I'm not coming, and that's flat. And I am going to stick to my old river, and live in a hole and boat, as I've always done. And what's more, Mole's going to stick with me and do as I do. Aren't you, Mole? Of course I am, said the Mole loyally. I'll always stick with you, Rat. And what you say is to be, has got to be. All the same, it sounds as if it might have been, well, rather fun, you know. He added wistfully, Poor Mole. The life adventurous was so new a thing to him, and so thrilling, and this fresh aspect of it was so tempting, and he had fallen in love at first sight with the canary-colored cart and all its little fitments. The rat saw what was passing his mind and wavered. He hated disappointing people, and he was fond of the mole, and he would do almost anything to oblige him. Toad was watching both of them closely. Come along in and we'll have some lunch, he said diplomatically, and we'll talk it over. We needn't decide anything in a hurry. Of course, I don't really care. I only want to give pleasure to you fellows. Live for others, that's my motto in life. During luncheon, which was excellent, of course, as everything at Toad Hall was, the Toad simply let himself go. Disregarding the rat, he proceeded to play upon the inexperienced mole as on a harp, naturally a voluble animal, and always mastered by his imagination. He painted the prospects of the trip and the joys of open life and the roadside in such glowing colors that the mole could hardly sit in his chair for excitement. Somehow, it soon seemed taken for granted by all three of them that the trip was a settled thing, and the rat, though still unconvinced in his mind, allowed his good nature to override his personal objections. He could not bear to disappoint his two friends, who were already deep in schemes and anticipations, planning out each day's separate occupation for several weeks ahead. When they were quite ready, a now triumphant toad led his companions to the paddock and set them to capture the old gray horse, who, without having been consulted, and to his own extreme annoyance, had been told off by Toad for the dustiest job in this dusty expedition. He frankly preferred the paddock, and took a deal of catching. Meantime, Toad packed the locker still tighter with necessaries, and hung nose bags, nets of onions, bundles of hay, and baskets from the bottom of the cart. At last the horse was caught and harnessed, and they set off, all taking at once, each animal either trudging by the side of the cart or sitting on the shaft as the humor took him. It was a golden afternoon. The smell of the dust they kicked up was rich and satisfying. Out of the thick orchards on either side of the road, birds called 
and whistled them cheerily. Good-natured wayfarers passing them gave them a good day or stopped to say nice things about their beautiful cart. And rabbits sitting on their front doors in the hedgerows held up their forepaws and said, Oh my, oh my, oh my. Late in the evening, tired and happy and miles from home, they drew up on a remote common far from habitations, turned the horse loose to graze, and ate their simple supper sitting on the grass by the side of the cart. Toad talked big about all he was going to do in the days to come, while stars grew fuller and larger all around them, and a yellow moon appearing suddenly and silently from nowhere in particular came to keep them company and listen to their talk. At last they turned into their little bunks in the cart, and Toad, kicking out his legs, sleepily said, Well, good night, you fellows. This is the real life for a gentleman. Talk about your old river. I don't talk about my river, replied the patient rat. You know that, Toad, but I think about it. He added pathetically, in a lower tone, I think about it all the time. The mole reached out from under his blanket, felt for the rat's paw in the darkness, and gave it a squeeze. I'll do whatever you like, Ratty, he whispered. Shall we run away tomorrow morning, quite early, very early, and go back to our dear old hole in the river? No, no, we'll see it out, whispered back the rat. Thanks awfully, but I ought to stick by Toad till this trip is ended. It wouldn't be safe for him to be left to himself. It won't take very long, his fads never do. The end was indeed nearer than even the rat suspected. After so much open air and excitement, the toad slept very soundly, and no amount of shaking could rouse him out of bed the next morning. So the mole and rat turned to, quietly and manfully, while the rat sought the horse and lit a fire and cleaned last night's cups and platters and got things ready for breakfast. The mole trudged off to the nearest village, a long way off for milk and eggs and various necessaries that Toad, of course, forgot to provide. The hard work had all been done, and the two animals were resting, thoroughly exhausted by the time Toad appeared on the scene, fresh and gay, remarking what a pleasant, easy life it was that they were all leading now, after the cares and worries and fatigues of housekeeping at home. They had a pleasant ramble that day, over grassy downs and along narrow by-lanes, and camped as before on a common. Only this time the two guests took care that Toad should do his fair share of work. In consequence, when the time came for starting next morning, Toad was by no means rapturous about the simplicity of primitive life, and indeed attempted to resume his place in the bunk, whence he was hauled by force. Their way lay, as before, across country by narrow lanes, and it was not till afternoon that they came out on the high road, their first high road, and their disaster, fleet and unforeseen, sprang out on them. Disaster, momentous indeed to their expedition, but simply overwhelming in its effect on the after-career of Toad. They were strolling along the high road easily, and Mole by the horse's head, talking to him, since the horse complained that he was being frightfully left out of it, and nobody considered him in the least, the toad and the water rat walking behind the cart, talking together. At least toad was talking, and the rat was saying at intervals, Yes, precisely. And what did you say to him? And thinking all the time of something very different, when far behind him they heard a faint, warning hum, 
like the drone of a distant bee. Glancing back, they saw a small cloud of dust with a dark center of energy advancing on them at an incredible speed, while from out of the dust a faint poop poop wailed like an uneasy animal in pain. Hardly regarding it, they turned to resume their conversation, when, in an instant, as it seemed, the peaceful scene was changed, with a blast of wind and a whirl of sound that made them jump for the nearest ditch that was on them. The poop-poop rang with a brazen shout in their ears, and they had a moment's glimpse of an interior, a glittering plate glass in rich Morocco, and the magnificent motor car, immense, breath-snatching, passionate, with its pilot tense and hugging his wheel, possessed all earth and air for the fraction of a second, flung an enveloping cloud of dust that blinded and wrapped them utterly, and then dwindled to a speck in the far distance, changed back into a droning bee once more. The old gray horse, dreaming as he plodded along of his quiet paddock in a new raw situation such as this, simply abandoned himself to his natural emotions, rearing, plunging, backing steadily, in spite of all Mole's efforts at his head, and all Mole's lively language directed at his better feelings, he drove the cart backwards towards the deep ditch of the side of the road. It wavered an instant, then there was a heart-rendering crash, and the canary-colored cart, their pride and their joy, lay on its side in the ditch, an irredeemable wreck. The rat danced up and down on the road, simply transported with passion. You villains, he shouted, shaking both fists. You scoundrels, you highwaymen, you, you, you road hogs. And I'll have the law on you. I'll report you. I'll take you through all the courts. His homesickness had quite slipped away from him, and for a moment he was the skipper of a canary-colored vessel, driven on a shoal by a reckless jockeying of rival mariners, and he was trying to recollect all the fine and biting things he used to say to masters of steam launches when their wash, as they drove too near to the bank, used to flood his parlor carpet at home. Toad sat straight down in the middle of the dusty road, his legs stretched out before him, and stared fixedly in the direction of the disappearing motor car. He breathed short, his face wore a placid, satisfied expression, and at intervals he faintly murmured, Poop, poop. The mole was busy trying to quiet the horse, which he succeeded in doing after a time. Then he went to look at the cart, on its side in the ditch. It was indeed a sorry sight. Panels and windows smashed, axles hopelessly bent, one wheel off, sardine tins scattered over the wide world, and the bird in the birdcage sobbing pitifully and calling to be let out. The rat came to help him, but their united efforts were not sufficient to right the cart. Hi, Toad, they cried. Come and bear a hand, can't you? The Toad never answered a word or budged from his seat in the road, so they went to see what's the matter with him. They found him in a sort of trance, a happy smile on his face, his eyes still fixed on the dusty wake of their destroyer. At intervals, he was still heard to murmur, Poop, poop. The rat shook him by the shoulder. Are you come to help us, Toad? he demanded sternly. Glorious, stirring sight, murmured Toad, never offering to move. The poetry of motion, the real way to travel, the only way to travel, here today.
and the next week tomorrow. Villages skipped, towns and cities jumped, always somebody else's horizon. Oh, bliss, oh, poop, poop, oh, my, oh, my. Oh, stop being an ass, Toad, cried the mole disparagingly. And to think I never knew, went on the Toad in a dreamy monotone. All those wasted years that lie behind me, I never knew, never even dreamt. But now, but now I know, now that I fully realize... Oh, what a flowery track lies spread before me henceforth. What dust cloud shall spring up behind me as I speed on my reckless way? What carts I shall fling carelessly into the ditch in the wake of my magnificent onset? Horrid little carts, common carts, canary-colored carts. What are we to do with him? asked the mole of the water rat. Nothing at all, replied rat firmly because there is really nothing to be done. You see, I know him from old. He is now possessed. He's got his new craze, and it always takes him that way, in its first stage. He'll continue like this for days now, like an animal walking in a happy dream, quite useless for all practical purposes. Never mind him. Let's go and see what there is to be done about the cart. A careful inspection has showed them that, even if they succeeded in riding it by themselves, the cart would travel no longer. The axles were in a hopeless state, and the missing wheel was shattered into pieces. The rat nodded the horse's reins over his back and took him by the head, carrying the birdcage and its hysterical occupant in the other hand. Come on, he said grimly to the mole. It's five or six miles to the nearest town, and we shall just have to walk it. The sooner we make a start, the better. But what about Toad? asked the mole anxiously, as they set off together. We can't leave him here, sitting in the middle of the road by himself, in the distracted state he's in. It's not safe, supposing another thing were to come along. Oh, bother, Toad, said the rat savagely. I've done with him. They had not proceeded very far on their way, however, when there was a pattering of feet behind them, and Toad caught them up and thrust a paw inside the elbow of each of them, still breathing short and staring into vacancy. Now look here, Toad, said the rat sharply. As soon as we get to the town, you'll have to go straight to the police station and see if they know anything about that motor car and who it belongs to and lodge a complaint against it. And then you'll have to go to the blacksmith's or the wheelwrights and arrange for the cart to be fetched and mended and put to rights. It'll take time, but it's not quite a hopeless smash. Meanwhile, the mole and I will go to an inn and find comfortable rooms where we can stay till the cart's ready, until your nerves have recovered their shock. Police station? Complaint, murmured the tone dreamily. Me complain of that beautiful, that heavenly vision that has vouchsafed me. Mend the cart. I've done with carts forever. I never want to see the cart or hear of it again. Oh, ratty. You can't think how obliged I am to you for consenting to come on this trip. And then I might have never seen that, that swan, that sunbeam, that thunderbolt. I might have never heard that entrancing sound or smelt that bewitching smell. I owe it all to you, my best of friends. The rat turned to him in despair. You see what it is, he said to the mole, addressing him across Toad's head. He's quite hopeless. I give it up. When we get to the town, we'll go to the railway station, and with luck, 
We may pick up a train there that'll get us back to the riverbank tonight. And if you ever catch me going a pleasuring with this provoking animal again, he snorted, and during the rest of the weary trudge, addressed his remarks exclusively to the mole. On reaching the town, they went straight to the station and deposited Toad in the second-class waiting room, giving a porter two pence to keep a strict eye on him. They then left the horse at an instable and gave what directions they could about the cart and its contents. Eventually, a slow train having landed them at a station not very far from Toad Hall, they escorted the spellbound, sleepwalking Toad to his door and put him inside it, instructed his housekeeper to feed him, undress him, and put him to bed. Then they got out their boat from the boathouse, sculled down the river home, and at a very late hour sat down to supper in their own cozy riverside parlor, to the rat's great joy and contentment. The following evening, the mole, who had risen late and taken things very easy all day, was sitting on the bank fishing, when the rat, who had been looking up at his friends and gossiping, came strolling along to find him. Heard the news, he said. There's nothing else being talked about all along the riverbank. Toad went up to town by early train this morning, and he has ordered a very large and expensive motor car. The Wildwood The mole had long waited to make the acquaintance of the badger. He seemed by all accounts to be such an important personage and rarely visible to make his unseen influence felt by everybody about the place. But whenever Mole mentioned his wish to the water rat, he always found himself put off. It's all right, the rat would say. Badger will turn up some day or another. He's always turning up. And then I'll introduce you. The best of fellows. But you must not only take him as you find him, but when you find him. Couldn't you ask him here? Dinner or something, said the mole. He wouldn't come, replied the rat simply. Badger hates society and invitations and dinner and all that sort of thing. Well, then, supposing we go call on him, suggested the mole. Oh, I'm sure he wouldn't like that at all, said the rat, quite alarmed. He's so very shy. He'd be sure to be offended. I've never even ventured to call on him at his own home myself though I know him so well. Besides, we can't. It's quite out of the question, because he lives in the very middle of the wild wood. Well, suppose he does, said the mole. You told me the wild wood was all right, you know. Oh, I know. I know, so it is, replied the rat evasively. But I think we won't go there just now. Not just yet. It's a long way, and he wouldn't be at home at this time of year anyhow, and he'll be coming along some day if you wait quietly. The mole had to be content with this, but the badger never came along, and every day brought its amusements, and it was not till summer was long over, and cold and frost and miry ways kept them much indoors, and the swollen river raced past outside their window with a speed that mocked at boating of any sort or kind, that he found his thoughts dwelling again, and with much persistence on the solitary gray badger, who lived his own life by himself in his hole in the middle of the wild wood. In the winter time, the rat slept a great deal, retiring early and rising late. During his short day, he sometimes scribbled poetry or did other small domestic jobs about the house. And of course, there were always animals dropping in for a chat. And consequently, there was a good deal of storytelling and comparing notes on the past summer and all its doings, 
Such a rich chapter it had been when one came to look back at it all, with illustrations so numerous and so very highly colored. The pageant of the riverbank had marched steadily along, unfolding itself in scene pictures that succeeded each other in stately procession. Purple loosestrife arrived early, shaking luxuriant tangled locks along the edge of the mirror whence its own face laughed back at it. Willow herb, tender and wistful, like a pink sunset cloud, was not slow to follow. Comfrey, the purple, hand in hand with the white, crept forth to take its place in line, and at last, one morning, the different and delaying dog rose stepped delicately on the stage, and one knew, as if string music had announced it in stately chords that strayed into a gavette, that June was at last here. One member of the company was still awaited, the shepherd boy for the nymphs to woo, the knight for whom the ladies waited at the window, the prince that was to kiss the sleeping summer back to life and love. But when meadowsweet, debonair, and odorous and amber jerkin moved graciously to his place in the group, then the play was ready to begin. And what a play it had been. Drowsy animals, snug in their holes while wind and rain were battering at their doors, recalled still keen mornings an hour before sunrise, while the white mist, as yet undispersed, clung closely along the surface of the water. Then the shock of the early plunge, the scamper along the bank, and the radiant transformation of earth and water, when suddenly the sun was with them again, and gray was gold, and color was born, and sprang out of the earth once more. They recalled the languorous siesta of hot midday, deep in green undergrowth, the sun striking through in many tiny golden shafts and spots, the boating and bathing of the afternoon, the rambles along dusty lanes and through yellow cornfields, and the long, cool evening at last, when so many threads were gathered up, so many friendships rounded, and so many adventures planned for the morrow. There was plenty to talk about on those short winter days when the animals found themselves around the fire. Still, the mole had a good deal of spare time on his hands, and so one afternoon, when the rat in his armchair, before the blaze, was alternately dozing and trying over rhymes that wouldn't fit, he formed the resolution to go out by himself and explore the wild wood, and perhaps strike up an acquaintance with Mr. Badger. It was a cold, still afternoon, with a hard, steely sky overhead, when he slipped out of the warm parlor into the open air. The country lay bare and entirely leafless around him, and he thought that he had never seen so far and intimately into the insides of things as on that winter day when nature was deep in her annual slumber and seemed to have kicked her clothes off. Copses, dells, quarries, and all hidden places, which had been mysterious mines for exploration in leafy summer, now exposed themselves and their secrets pathetically and seemed to ask him to overlook their shabby poverty for a while till they could riot in rich masqueraders before, and trick and entice him with old deceptions. It was pitiful in a way, and yet cheering, even exhilarating. He was glad that he liked the country undecorated, hard, and stripped of its finery. He had got down to the bare bones of it, and they were fine and strong and simple. He did not want the warm clover and the play of seeding grasses, the screens of quickset, the billowy drapery of beech, the elm seemed the best away, and with great cheerfulness of spirit he pushed on toward the wild wood, 
which lay before him low and threatening, like a black reef in some still southern sea. There was nothing to alarm him at first entry. Twigs crackled under his feet. Logs tripped him. Funguses on stumps resembled caricatures and startled him for a moment by their likeness to something familiar and far away. But that was all fun and exciting. It led him on, and he penetrated to where the light was less, and the trees crouched nearer and nearer, and holes made ugly mouths at him at either side. Everything was very still now. The dusk advanced on him steadily, rapidly, gathering in behind and before, and the light seemed to be draining away like flood water. Then the faces began. It was over his shoulder, and indistinctly, that he first thought he saw a face, a little evil wedge-shaped face, looking out at him from a hole. When he turned and confronted it, the thing had vanished. He quickened his pace, telling himself cheerfully not to begin imagining things, or there would be simply no end to it. He passed another hole, and another, and another, and then, yes, no, yes, certainly, a little narrow face, with hard eyes, had flashed up for an instant from a hole and was gone. He hesitated, braced himself up for an effort and strode on. Then, suddenly, and as if it had been so all the time, every hole, far and near, and there were hundreds of them, seemed to possess its face, coming and going rapidly, all fixing on him glances of malice and hatred, all hard-eyed and evil and sharp. If he could only get away from the holes in the banks, he thought, there would be no more faces. He swung off the path and plunged into the untrodden places in the wood. Then the whistling began. Very faint and shrill it was, and far behind him when he first heard it, but somehow it made him hurry forward. Then, still very faint and shrill, it sounded far ahead of him and made him hesitate and want to go back. As he halted in indecision, it broke out on either side, and seemed to be caught up and passed on throughout the whole length of the wood to its furthest limit. They were up and alert and ready, evidently, whoever they were. And he, he was alone and unarmed and far from any help, and the night was closing in. Then the pattering began. He thought it was only falling leaves at first, so slight and delicate was the sound of it. Then, as it grew, it took a regular rhythm, and he knew it for nothing else but the pat, pat, pat of little feet, still a very long way off. Was it in front or behind? It seemed to be first one, then the other, then both. It grew and multiplied, till from every quarter, as he listened anxiously, leaning this way and that, it seemed to be closing in on him. As he stood still to hear keen, a rabbit came running hard towards him through the trees. He waited expecting it to slacken pace or to swerve from him into a different course. Instead, the animal brushed him as it dashed past, his face set and hard, his eyes staring. Get out of this, you fool. Get out. The mole heard him mutter as he swung round a stump and disappeared down a friendly burrow. The pattering increased till it sounded like a sudden hail on a dry-leaf carpet spread around him. The whole wood seemed running now, running hard, hunting, chasing, closing in round something or somebody. In panic, he began to run too, aimlessly, he knew not whither. 
He ran up against things. He fell over things and into things. He darted under things and dodged round things. At last he took refuge in a deep, dark hollow of an old beech tree, which offered shelter, concealment, perhaps even safety. But who could tell? Anyhow, he was too tired to run any further and could only snuggle down into the dry leaves which had drifted into the hollow in the hope he was safe for a time. And as he lay there panting and trembling and listened to the whistlings and the patterings outside, he knew it at last, in all its fullness, that dread thing which other little dwellers in field and hedgerow had encountered here and known at their darkest moment, that thing which Rat had vainly tried to shield him from, the terror of the wild wood. Meantime the rat, warm and comfortable, dozed by his fireside. His paper of half-finished verses slipped from his knee, his head fell back, his mouth opened, and he wandered by the verdant banks of dream rivers. Then a coal slipped, the fire crackled and sent up a spurt of flame, and he woke with a start. Remembering what he had been engaged upon, he reached down to the floor for his verses, poured over them for a minute, and then looked around for the mole to ask if he knew a good rhyme for something or other. But the mole was not there. He listened for a time. The house seemed very quiet. Then he called, Moly, several times, and receiving no answer, got up and went out into the hall. The mole's cap was missing from its accustomed peg. His galoshes, which always lay by the umbrella stand, were also gone. The rat left the house and carefully examined the muddy surface on the ground outside, hoping to find the mole's tracks. There they were, sure enough. The galoshes were new, just bought for the winter, and the pimples in their soles were fresh and sharp. He could see the imprints of them in the mud, running along straight and purposeful, leading direct to the wild wood. The rat looked very grave and stood in deep thought for a minute or two. Then he re-entered the house, strapped a belt around his waist, shoved a brace of pistols into it, took up a stout cudgel that stood in the corner of the hall and set off for the wild wood at a smart pace. It was already getting towards dusk when he reached the first fringe of trees and plunged without hesitation into the wood, looking anxiously on either side for any sign of his friend. Here and there, wicked little faces popped out of holes, but vanished immediately at the sight of the valorous animal, his pistols, and the great ugly cudgel at his grasp, and the whistling and pattering, which he had heard quite plainly on his first entry, died away and ceased, and all was very still. He made his way manfully through the length of the wood to its furthest edge, then, forsaking all paths, he set himself to traverse it, laboriously working over the whole ground, and all the time calling out cheerfully, Moly, 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 where are you? It's old rat. He had patiently hunted through the wood for an hour or more, when at last, to his joy, he heard a little answering cry. Guiding himself by the sound, he made his way through the gathering darkness to the foot of an old beech tree with a hole in it, and from out of the hole came a feeble voice, saying, Ratty, is that really you? The rat crept into the hollow, and there he found the mole, exhausted and still trembling. Oh, rat, he cried, I've been so frightened you can't think. Oh, I quite understand, said the rat soothingly. 
You shouldn't really have gone and done it, Mole. I did my best to keep you from it. We riverbankers, we hardly ever come up here by ourselves. And if we have to come, we come in couples, at least. Then we're generally all right. Besides, there are a hundred things one has to know, which we understand all about, and you don't, as yet. I mean, passwords and signs, and sayings which have power and effect, and plants you carry in your pocket, and verses you repeat, and dodges and tricks you practice, all simple enough when you know them, but they've got to be known if you're small, or you'll find yourself in trouble. Of course, if you were badger or otter, it would be quite another matter. Surely the brave Mr. Toad wouldn't mind coming here by himself, would he? inquired the mole. Old Toad, said Rat, laughing heartily. He wouldn't show his face here alone. Not for a whole hatful of golden guineas, Toad wouldn't. The mole was greatly cheered by the sound of Rat's careless laughter, as well by the sight of his stick and his gleaming pistols. And he stopped shivering and began to feel bolder and more himself again. Now then, said the rat presently, we really must pull ourselves together and make a start for home while there's still a little light left. It will never do to spend the night here, you understand. Too cold, for one thing. Dear ratty, said poor Mole, I'm dreadfully sorry, but I'm simply dead beat, and that's a solid fact. You must let me rest here a while longer and get my strength back if I'm to get home at all. Oh, all right, said the good-natured rat. Rest away. It's pretty nearly pitch dark now, anyhow, and there ought to be a good bit of moon later. So the mole got well into the dry leaves and stretched himself out, and presently dropped off into sleep, though of a broken and troubled sort, while the rat covered himself up too, as best he might for warmth, and lay patiently waiting with a pistol in his paw. When at last the mole woke up, much refreshed and in his usual spirits, the rat said, Now then, I'll just take a look outside and see if everything's quiet, and then we really must be off. He went to the entrance of their retreat and put his head out. Then the mole heard him saying quietly to himself, Hello, hello, here is a go. What's up, ratty? asked the mole. Snow is up, replied Rat briefly, or rather, down. It's snowing hard. The mole came and crouched beside him, and looking out, saw the wood that had been so dreadful to him in quite a change. Saw the wood that had been so dreadful to him in quite a changed aspect. Holes, hollows, pools, pitfalls, and other black menaces to the wayfarer were vanishing fast, and gleaming carpet of fairy was springing up everywhere. It looked too delicate to be trodden upon by rough feet. A fine powder filled the air and caressed the cheek with a tingle in its touch, and the black boles of the trees showed up in a light that seemed to come from below. Well, well, it can't be helped, said the rat, after pondering. We must make a start and take our chance, I suppose. The worst of it, I don't know exactly where we are, and now this snow makes everything look very different. It did indeed. The mole would have not known that it was the same wood. However, they set out bravely, and they took the line that seemed most promising, holding on to each other and pretending with invincible cheerfulness that they recognized an old friend in every fresh tree that grimly and silently greeted them, or saw openings and gaps 
or paths with a familiar turn in them and the monotony of white space and black tree trunks that refused to vary. An hour or two later, they had lost all count of time. They pulled up, dispirited, weary and hopelessly at sea, and sat down on a fallen tree trunk to recover their breath and consider what was to be done. They were aching with fatigue and bruised with tumbles, and they had fallen into several holes and got wet through. The snow was getting so deep that they could hardly drag their little legs through it, and the trees were thicker and more like each other than ever. There seemed to be no end to this wood, and no beginning, and no difference in it, and worst of all, no way out. We can't sit here very long, said the rat. We shall have to make another push for it and do something or other. The cold is too awful for anything, and the snow will soon be too deep for us to wade through. He peered about him and considered. Look here, he went on. This is what occurs to me. There's sort of a dell down there in front of us, where the ground seems all hilly and humpy and hammocky. We'll make our way down into that and try to find some sort of shelter, a cave or hole with a dry floor to it, out of the snow and the wind, and there we'll have a good rest before we try again, for we're both of us pretty dead beat. Besides, the snow may leave off, or something may turn up. So once more, they got on their feet and struggled into the dell, where they hunted about for a cave or some corner that was dry and a protection from the keen wind and the whirling snow. They were investigating one of the hummocky bits the rat had spoken of, when suddenly the mole tripped and fell forward on his face with a squeal. Oh, my leg, he cried. Oh, my poor shin. He sat up on the snow and nursed his leg in both his front paws. Poor old mole, said the rat kindly. You don't seem to be having as much luck today, do you? Let's have a look at the leg. Yes. He went on, going on his knees to look. You've cut your shin, sure enough. Wait till I get at my handkerchief, and I'll tie it up for you. I must have tripped over a hidden branch or a stump, said the mole miserably. Oh my, oh my. It's a very clean cut, said the rat, examining it again attentively. That was never done by a branch or a stump. Looks as if it was made by a sharp edge of something in metal. Funny. He pondered a while, and examined the humps and slopes that surrounded them. Well, never mind what done it, said the mole, forgetting his grammar in his pain. It hurts just the same, whatever done it. But the rat, after carefully tying up his leg with his handkerchief, had left him and was busy scraping in all the snow. He scratched and shoveled and explored, all four legs working busily, while the mole waited impatiently, remarking at intervals, Oh, come on, rat. Suddenly, the rat cried, Hooray! And then, Hooray, hooray, hooray! And fell to executing a feeble jig in the snow. What have you found, ratty? asked the mole, still nursing his leg. Come and see, said the delighted rat, as he jigged on. The mole hobbled up to the spot and had a good look. Well, he said at last, slowly, I see it right enough. Seen the same sort of thing before, lots of times. Familiar object, I call it. A door scraper. Well, what of it? 
Why dance jigs around a door scraper? But don't you see what it means, you you dull-witted animal? cried the rat impatiently. Of course I see what it means, replied the mole. It simply means that some very careless and forgetful person has left his door scraper lying about in the middle of the wild wood, just where it's sure to trip everybody up. Very thoughtless of him, I call it. When I get home, I shall go and complain about it to, to somebody or other. See if I don't. Oh dear, oh dear, cried the rat, in despair at his obtuseness. Here, stop arguing and come and scrape. And he set to work again and made snow fly in all directions around him. After some further toil, his efforts were rewarded, and a very shabby doormat lay exposed to view. There, what did I tell you? exclaimed the rat in great triumph. Absolutely nothing whatever, replied the mole with perfect truthfulness. Well now, he went on, you seem to have found another piece of domestic litter, done for and thrown away, and I suppose you're perfectly happy. Better go ahead and dance your jig round it, if that's what you've got to do, and get it over, and then perhaps we can go and not waste any more time over rubbish heaps. Can we eat a doormat, or sleep under a doormat, or sit on a doormat, and sledge home over the snow on it, you exasperating rodent? Do you mean to say, cried the excited rat, that this doormat doesn't tell you anything? Really, rat, said the mole quite pettishly, I think we had enough of this folly. Who ever heard of a doormat telling anyone anything? They simply don't do it. They're not the sort at all. Doormats know their place. Now look here, you you thick-headed beast, replied the rat, really angry. This must stop. Not another word, but scrape. Scrape and scratch and dig and hunt around. But especially on the sides of the hummocks. If you want to sleep dry and warm tonight, for it's our last chance. The rat attacked the snowbank beside them with ardor, probing with his cudgel everywhere and then digging with fury, and the mole scraped busily too, more to oblige the rat than for any other reason, for his opinion was that his friend was getting a little light-headed. Some ten minutes hard work, and the point of the rat's cudgel struck something that sounded hollow. He worked till he could get his paw through and feel, then called to the mole to come up and help him. Hard at it went the two animals, till the last of the result of their labors stood full in view of the astonished and hitherto incredulous mole. In the side of what had seemed to be a snowbank stood a solid-looking door, painted a dark green. An iron bell pole hung by the side, and below it, on a small brass plate, neatly engraved in square capital letters they could read by the aid of the moonlight. Mr. Badger. The mole fell backwards on the snow from sheer surprise and delight. Rat, he cried in penitence, you're a wonder, a real wonder, that's what you are. I see it all now. You argued it out step by step in that wise head of yours from the very moment that I fell and cut my shin, and you looked at the cut, and at once your majestic mind said to itself, Door scraper. And then you turned and found the very door scraper that done it. 
Did you stop there? No. Some people would have been quite satisfied, but not you. Your intellect went on working. Let me only just find a doormat, says you to yourself, and my theory is proved. And of course you found your doormat. You're so clever. I believe you could find anything you liked. Now, says you, that door exists, as plain as if I saw it. There's nothing else remains to be done but to find it. Well, I've read about that sort of thing in books, but I've never come across it before in real life. You ought to go where you'll be properly appreciated. You're simply wasting here among us fellows. If I only had your head ready. But, as you haven't, interrupted the rat rather unkindly, I suppose you're going to sit on the snow all night and talk. Get up at once and hang on to that bell pole you see there and ring hard as hard as you can while I hammer. While the rat attacked the door with his stick, the mole sprang up at the bell pole, clutched it and swung there, both feet well off the ground, and from quite a long way off, they could faintly hear a deep-toned bell respond. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.